The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Howdy-do, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his dance partner, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 102 of The Big Picture for the week beginning April 10. And coming up on today's show, Mark, is it possible to laugh at a sitcom about less abled people? We'll find out and remake and reboots with Scarlett Johansson's Ghost in the Shell and the return of 70s cop show Chips. Chips is back. Chips is back. Wow. But who's n- Where's Sam? He's not back. <laughs> yeah, he's not back. Yes, yeah, Sam Robinson is usually here uh, steering the ship on the good ship big picture. But <laughs> Sam is away on holidays. O- occasionally, Mark, we like to give Sam you know, a day off here or there. He's earned it. Since he's not at the wheel, we'll be steering this show into an audio reef sometime <laughs> soon. <laughs> trying to avoid that. Mark, uh, we might as well kick off. Um, even though Sam isn't here, let's just do what we normally do. Yeah, what, what's coming up in film? And start off with what's coming up in film. Um, what opened last week, and this is a nod to Sam Robinson, who on last week's show was talking about Dance Academy. So that opened at cinemas last Thursday. Go to the bigpicturewebsite.com, check out Sam's review of this. Go, Astra- go early, avoid the lines. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this was a trained TV show, if you didn't know, that's been turned into a movie that you didn't really know you needed, but now you do. Here it is, Dance Academy. And Mark, opening this Thursday, the film that you personally, single-handedly, have been waiting for your entire <laughs> life, Fate of the Furious. Furious, the seventh sequel in the Fast and Furious franchise that will never seem to end. Vin Diesel's back, but he's joined this time around by Charlize Theron and Dame Helen Mirren, two Oscar-winning ladies. It's becoming are- like the bill. You know, like everyone, oh yeah, I've been on the bill. Everyone's been on the bill. It's now like everyone's been in the Fast and the Furious. Okay, let's talk TV because that's much better. Uh, it's about playing catch up this week with Netflix. And since we're shortly featuring a hero with a disability in what our kids are watching segment this week, I thought I'd let you know about another couple of characters with different struggles. So, number one, TV, you'll see Marvel's Iron Fist. That kicked off on March 17. Now, it's the new, it's the latest sort of Marvel um, TV series. So, if you like that sort of action here, Heroes sort of stuff, you'll find it. This one is about a billionaire orphan who loses his parents in a suspicious accident and comes to the Isn't that Batman? I know. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were describing Batman. I know it is. I was actually I actually got a note here to say, can anyone remember Batman? You know, but the the difference is there's a major difference. Okay. Okay. Um his plane crashes in the Himalayas and he's saved by fighting monks who teach him the power of the iron fist. But wasn't one of the Batman movies like Let, wasn't Batman's training? Like, moving let, on, so moving number on. two. Okay, look, yeah, well, there you go. I oh, know, but the point is, okay, that he actually has debilitating flashbacks, basically post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, so there's a hero with that, but Batman probably had that too. Okay, uh, another one actually that's kicked off uh, this past week is 13 Reasons Why, um, which I think is actually really worth a look. Yeah, uh, The show follows a student still recovering from his friend's suicide when he receives a box of tapes containing the reasons behind her death. So each episode is one of the reasons why she might have committed suicide. Well, you basically end up with, you've got a, a thriller, okay, a whodunit, but it's built around youth suicide and all the reasons why a person might end up killing themselves. Sounds like a little bit of a tightrope to walk. It's a really interesting construction. Look, I think it's it's fabulous. Have a look at it. 13 Reasons Why is uh, on Netflix now. All right, mate. I'll see if I can top that with some entertainment news. And here is my bulletin. Dun, 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 dun. Tom Cruise is coming to Australia. How about that? <sighs> 
Tom Cruise coming to Australia. Will, be, will we be having a lamb roast? He's. <laughs> uh, who remembers uh, who that? Who remembers that <laughs> ad? There Probably at go. least one person out there. Uh, Tom Cruise will be here uh, in June to promote The Mummy. That's right. There's a new version of The Mummy. Russell Crowe also stars in it. Russell will be here along with Tom Cruise. Uh, be promoting this latest film from Universal and they're trying to, Universal Studios are trying to resurrect some of their monster cr- features from the early kind of 30s and 40s. So Invisible Man, Frankenstein, Count Dracula, Wolfman, all of those are probably going to return next couple of years if this mummy film goes any good. They're trying to create like a new Universal universe up on screen, a bit like the Marvel universe or the DC Comics it, it, universe. If you can't own the comics or Star Wars, then let's have horror. The mummy! Isn't Tom Cruise getting on though? All of us do. Oh, sure. It's like he's in his fifties or something. <laughs> I know. Wow. Who knew? Anyway, you can find who, out. Who knew? Yeah. You can find out on June eight whether Tom Cruise actually ages or not. Okay. Well, Netflix isn't the only one with something to celebrate this week. Channel Nine has announced the debut trailer for their upcoming series High Life, and it's set to air on Nine's Go on thirteenth of April at ten fifteen p.m. Now, High Life is the second installment of a mental health series that was really highly acclaimed uh, last year called uh, Low Life. Okay, and it's about it was directed by Luke Eve, Australian Luke Eve, and so High Life is a kind of a six-part series that tells the story of Genevieve, a sensible, creative, overachieving seventeen-year-old student who experiences an unexpected teenage crisis. Unbeknownst to her and her middle-class, discreetly dysfunctional family, Genevieve is about to discover that she is bipolar. So you know you might be getting a bit of a theme here. We actually have a lot of things about disability in the show this week, and we figure you know this increasing awareness through the popular medium of popular culture. Not a bad thing at all. We are about to talk about a very interesting new show in what your kids are watching called Speechless. It's about a differently abled young chap. Um, in kind of that, that sort of vein, for true or false this week, Mark, I have a true or false that combines that and Tom Cruise into okay. the one fact. So Born on the Fourth of July was a film that Tom Cruise was in uh, in the late 80s. His first Oscar nomination came for this this role where he played a real-life guy called Ron Kovic. Kovic? Ron Kovic, I think his name was. He was a Vietnam War hero, but then turned anti-war activist when he came back. He was wounded and paralyzed, was in a wheelchair, uh, but went along fighting against war, pretty much, when he came back. Yeah, so his his war became a personal war against war. That is right. Now, this uh, also led to some pretty significant moments for Tom Cruise having played this role. Which one of these is true? Did the real Ron... Give Tom Cruise his actual bronze star, which he was awarded for heroic service. Did he give that to Tom Cruise? That's one option. Wow. Did Cruise give a speech at the University of California to commemorate the freedom of speech protests in 1964? Did Tom Cruise do that? Or did Muhammad Ali declare Cruise a lifelong friend and brother in arms after seeing this film? Because Ali himself had refused to be inducted into the US Army and was immediately stripped of his heavyweight title in 1967 for doing so. So... Out of all those things, which one is true? Did Ron Kovich give him, Tom Cruise, the Bronze Star, did Cruise make a speech to commemorate the freedom of speech protest or did Muhammad Ali say, mate, you're my mate? Which one of those is true, Mark? We're going to find out after this coming review. We will. Now, film and TV have always been media that have aimed to push the boundaries of tolerance. From interracial couples to outrageous in-laws, the big and small screens have taught us that one of the greatest goals is to get along. A new sitcom is taking that attitude to the differently abled as it follows the adventures of a family with a son with cerebral palsy as they settle into a new town. Speechless puts disability front and centre, making a hero out of a boy who needs someone else to say his lines. But it also shows just how unhelpful it can be to celebrate every kind of difference. Let's go to school, shall we? Where's the wheelchair ramp? 
a garbage ramp? Not just a garbage ramp. No, it's a garbage in my sun ramp. It's acceptable alternate access. Empty bag of manure. Trash or person? Go. Uh, it's trash. Are you trash? Are you a person? You're a person, Dr. Miller. Of course you're a person. Oh, doctor. Oi, office. So I told that principal, I'm not staying anywhere that I'm not wanted. These people know who you are. What do you mean? They talked to some other school that you went off on. What, Lincoln? No. Woodbridge? No. El Medina? No. Whitman? Fountain Valley? Does the fact that this has taken so long tell you anything about your patterns? Okay, so this series follows the DeMeo family. Now, the, you basically got mum, who's a kind of a take-charge British mother with a no-holds-barred attitude. Uh, that's played by Minnie Driver. Then you've got dad, who's a, a fellow called Jimmy, who doesn't seem to care about what others think. Dylan, their athletic daughter. Ray is their middle child, who acts as the brains of the series. Kind of think Malcolm in the middle. Uh, and their oldest son, JJ, a high schooler with cerebral palsy, who has a biting sense of humour. He can't speak, he's in a wheelchair, and part of the initial setup of the series is all about getting him a voice, um, which eventually becomes the school's gardener, you know, who's kind of cool and black and so forth. Anyway, Maya moves the whole family into a new school. She's been moving them school to school, trying to find the perfect life, but the kids eventually force her to settle down into this one school where they all feel like they've got a place. Mate, this sounds like pretty dangerous territory for a family sitcom about the disabled. Exactly how dangerous is it? Well, I think the first thing you've got to know is that none of the jokes are about JJ. Okay, so if anything, um, they are steering a, a, a tricky line by making a funny show about disability, but they're not making any jokes about the disabled in doing it. In fact, rather, what they're joking about uh, is all of the people and the way they relate to disability. So whether it be the school or whether it be the local government or whether it be the police or whether it be his own family, that's what we find funny, you know, the way that we treat these people. And I think that's really kind of healthy. Okay, so Speechless isn't just playing for laughs, right? But what is it about then? Is it about social awareness as well? Yeah, look, um, how much we subtly make life difficult for the disabled. So there's really obvious things like... Um, you know, in the uh, intro uh, play out then, we basically had a, a hint towards the fact that there was no disabled ramp, um, or at least there was a ramp into the school, but it was also the one they took the garbage in and out of at the back. Okay, so uh, so long as you comply with conditions, you can actually sort of feel like you're disabled uh, uh, aware, uh, oh, sorry, aware of the disabled. Yes. You know, but basically um, we can also put people down in the process of doing that. And one of the greatest impacts on the disabled uh, is not just the uh, impact on them per se, but on their families. So here are a bunch of people under extreme stress trying to create as normal a life as possible for their children uh, and things are being made difficult for them in, in where they can park and what they can do and, and so forth. Uh, but one of the really interesting things I find that we make difficult for the disabled that mm -hmm. Speechless brings out is the idea of lionising the disabled. What do you mean lionising? Well, you know, this idea that like they're all heroic, incredible individuals. Like every person who is differently abled is yeah, somehow... Is, is, saint and uh, a hero. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Now, it's not to say they're not good people, but um, the series makes the point that just because I'm disabled doesn't make me a hero straight away or doesn't make me a saint, doesn't make me wise or profound. You know, when JJ turns up to his new high school, they immediately greet him by saying, you should run for class president. And he says, why? You know, like, you don't even know me. And, oh, but you're so brave. Why? Because I'm in a wheelchair. You know, it, it's... It, what the, the what the show really wants to say is the fact that they're that they just want to be treated as normal people, not less than, 
not greater than, just normal. I'm getting the very strong vibe that you're a fan of Speechless, but does it also go in for that sort of triumph of the human spirit stuff? It sounds like what you were just saying then, it's heading towards that way. So is it going towards really being like the hi-fi fist-pumping triumph of the human spirit like action that no, so many disabled, quote-unquote, stories and head towards? Not really. I mean, I think if there's a focus uh, on this, it's the fact that um, uh, there is a laugh uh, at the, the biggest last reserve for how we try and celebrate difference no matter what. There's this high school that, for example, that they go to where they've done away with the Viking uh, as their school emblem because that's too has too many overtones of violence sure, and, sure. and sexism, in, apparently. Yeah. And they've replaced it with the sea slug because that has both <laughs> sets of genitalia. You know, and that's... More, and there's this huge joke. Go sea slugs. I know. There's this huge joke all the way through Speechless just about how politically correct both the disabled debate and in fact just society itself has become that's really what's getting all the sharp prods and speechless that's what's actually making people speechless every now and again as they they go why are we doing this just because you think that this somehow looks good for the rest of society personally I like this sort of thing because I feel like there's too much of society that's being shaped around what we feel will be inoffensive uh, or celebrating difference to the point that just because it's different it's better Uh, but that's not the case not all things are equal and I figure that the show goes a long way actually helping us laugh about that. Speechless stars Mini Driver John Ross Bowie and Micah Fowler as JJ. It's rated PG and airs on 11, Channel 11, at the disappointing time slot of 11.20 p.m. two weeks. Channel 10 had this at around 9 o'clock. Two weeks and then they kick it to 11.20. People, go find it. It's worth it. But Channel 10, hello? 11.20? Yeah. Oh, man, I was actually looking forward to watching that, but that's way past this is my why, bedtime. No, this is why God invented DVRs. Okay, before we get on to the rest of the show, here comes the answer to the true or false statement I made earlier about Tom Cruise and the way that Born on the Fourth of July changed his life. So did the character that he played, the real man, Ron Kovic, did he give Tom Cruise the bronze star that Ron won? Did Tom Cruise give a speech at the University of California to commemorate freedom of speech protest 1964? Or did Muhammad Ali basically declare, declare Tom Cruise his lifelong friend? Which one of those is true? I want it to be the Bronze Star, but I'm going to say Muhammad Ali because that makes no sense and so therefore it's kind of like real life. Ah, mate, what you wanted is actually the truth. Oh, the seriously? Real, the real Ron Kovic gave Tom Cruise his Bronze Star, which he was awarded for heroic service, for his, which he gave to Cruise for his performance in the movie. That's amazing. Okay, well, coming up, a mother of a child with cerebral palsy gives her verdict on Speechless before Scarlett Johansson turns Japanese, kind of, in Ghost in the Shell. Welcome back. Speechless might be a TV fiction, this sitcom that Mark talked about before the break, but the situation it teaches us about is anything but that to tens of thousands of families across Australia. This week for Press Record, we decided to send Mark out to meet a real mum who's had to learn to see the highs as well as the lows of disability. Di tells Mark she might not be laughing, but she's certainly smiling about where her son's struggles have taken her. Di, thanks very much for talking to The Big Picture. Let's get a quick snapshot of your family situation. So you're a mum and you've got a son called Nick. Can you tell us a bit about him? Okay, so Nick is uh, 20 and he has um, quite a significant disability. He has cerebral palsy. Spastic quadriplegia is the way it's described and that it affects his whole body. He also is on the autism spectrum. Now, you know that we've been talking about Speechless, that new television series this week. This is not just a television series for you, this is life. Can you give us a picture of what your life is like with Nick's condition? 
yes, I actually love the show Speechless. I think it's bringing a lot of issues into public view, which is terrific. One of the biggest challenges we face daily is dealing with people's perceptions of disability. And we struggle with frustrations on how people uh, perceive us in public, I guess. It's not just how people perceive, too. You've got some very physical, very real things. I mean, Nick is in a wheelchair. Yeah, that's true. And I guess, too, just people's lack of consideration can sometimes be a huge challenge. So there are days when I'm feeling really worn out and tired from the caring role. Nick loves to be out in the community, so I try um, my best to take him to the shops and do things that he wants to do in the community. But just having people respond in a negative way while we're out and about can really ruin our day. Right. Now, the interesting thing is we're interviewing you at a church, but six years ago, this is the last sort of place you would have seen yourself. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I became a Christian about six years ago, but I've honestly always believed in God, and he's always been, I guess, on my mind. But it was only my younger son's curiosity after being enrolled in a a Christian school when he started asking questions that made me realise I didn't know the answers. So I felt like a bit of a hypocrite not being able to answer him and enrolling him in a Christian school. So his questions brought me to church. Uh, his questions have been satisfied, but mine haven't now. I have more questions than ever and really enjoy being part of the church community and the, and the family here. Can I delve a bit into your questions? Uh, our experience with the disabled community, yours as well, is that sometimes, particularly amongst people who don't have a relationship with God, there can be a lot of frustration uh, with the concept of God, even anger. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was very angry. Um, I used to describe myself as walking around in a constant state of road rage prior to becoming a Christian and a regular churchgoer. I didn't ask God why me, but I was angry at God. I think I was angry that I felt he contributed to the lack of uh, quality of life for my son. He was responsible for restricting our choices as a family because of my son's disability. I think I put the burden of ownership of my son's disability onto him and I was angry for that and frustrated and I just got no answers. What changed that? Coming to church, really getting to know Jesus and understanding more of what the Bible teaches. So you see God differently now, not as the, the inflictor of pain and suffering? Not at all, no. He's definitely my saviour now. Um, I do take all my worries and concerns to him. I honestly cannot comprehend where I would be now if I didn't have Jesus in my life. Unfortunately, I'm the only one in my family who is a Christian, but my husband can see a change in me. He says going to church makes you happy, so I'm happy. <laughs> And it's true, I'm a happier, more relaxed person now that I can put my worries at Jesus' feet. Have you seen The Matrix? Well, then you've already seen the best parts of one of the most famous examples of Japanese animation, Ghost in the Shell. The Matrix ripped off some of Ghost in the Shell's visuals and concepts, and now Hollywood has entirely remade that classic Japanese animation as a live-action feature with Scarlett Johansson, a sci-fi adventurer about what it means to be human. I saw someone down there. He wasn't human. 
He's a known terrorist. And he's killed again. They didn't just kill them. They hacked into their minds. He's everywhere. Nowhere. I will find him. And I will kill him. Ghost in the Shell set in some kind of near future in the, you know, not in the near future. Sometime. Like stones throw away from sometime now. Sometime soon. I uh, think a world like Blade Runner meets Back to the Future Part 2, mid of Fifth Element chucked in there as well. Scully Hansen is major, the first successful example of a human brain implanted into a cyborg's body. So you've got human brain into a robot body. And she's almost this super weapon on the hunt with a posse of other kind of super weapon cyborg cyber enhanced people on the hunt for a super hacker who's played by Michael Pitt, who I think is best known to audiences at the moment for his work in the first few series of Boardwalk Empire. That is basically Ghost in the Shell in a nutshell, Mark. And for anyone who hasn't seen the original, all of that might come as a bit of a surprise. This was originally a manga comic and yes. then it made it to an anime. Um, does it make the transition to mainstream Hollywood feature? For anyone who doesn't know, manga is Japanese comic books, anime is Japanese animation. Does it make the transition? Well, um, look, I actually think it benefits if you haven't seen the original. And as a full confession, I only watched the original Ghost in the Shell, which came out in 1995. I watched it about ooh, three days before I saw the Scarlett Johansson version. I thought I'd better do my homework. Um, I, I preferred the original, like usually happens when you get to a remake territory. But I think it does benefit more, this Scarlett Johansson version, if you haven't seen the original. Because some of the concepts, the ideas in it um, will hit you between the eyes and I think will stick with you a bit longer if you haven't got anything to compare it with, if you haven't seen where it comes through. So the, so the transition, I think, is actually like not so bad, given we do, we're talking about a westernized version of Eastern philosophies. The 3D effects in this film are great. It's visually beautiful. It's not as sleazy either, either as you might expect. If you've seen any posters of Ghost in the Shell, you've seen Scarlett Johansson in these like body-hugging Lycra suits that basically look like she's not wearing much at all. But... The big disappointment for me is that it's pretty much surface deep. It's got huge ideas, but pretty much executed in a one-dimensional fashion, I found. Well, you mentioned in the lead-up, as you're just discussing, that she's uh, supported by a team full of uh, cybernetically augmented people. Yeah, I think that's cyber-enhanced. Cyber-enhanced, okay. But in a society that sort of embraces that sort of thing, what does that look like? How does that come across as a, a philosophy? Well, it just seems like uh, a bit of a response to like where we are in the world at the moment, a, a place that loves technology. And even isn't there parts of the world, what are you telling me the other day, there are parts of the world where people are getting credit cards like inserted under their skin? Yeah, like that's chips. true. Yeah, in Scandinavia now, you can actually get like your, your, like your pass for the work microwave <laughs> your photocopier inserted yeah? under your skin. Yeah. And given the original Ghost in the Shell was out in 995, which means the manga comic came out like years before that, it's really quite prophetic in a, in a similar kind of way to movies like Blade Runner and how they're really... These sci-fi, sci-fi concoctions that really tell us something about ourselves and the way we're headed. So all these ideas up on screen of cyber enhancement and um, like man and machine or human and machine and even what does it mean for our life now and what's up with eternity and can we get, become immortal through machines? All these ideas swirling pretty much come out of, I think, the society that we're living in now and have been living in you know, pretty much since well, almost like the dawn of time. Like People have been trying to create things and develop things over and over and over and often to this end of basically trying to almost fend off your own mortality. Uh, okay, so, so this you're saying that Ghost in the Shell actually says something fundamental about being human and that that is we're trying to not die or...? 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. It actually it comes to a finer point than that, Mark. So, yeah, all these ideas swirl around in it. And, and again, the most disappointing thing for me about Ghost in the Shell uh, is that it doesn't... As soon as these big ideas come up, I found it retreated from them pretty much as quickly as it could. So often this character of Major, played by Scarlett Johansson, is, is wondering what does it mean to be human? I've only got a brain. I don't have a body. What's going on? It comes to a fine point, Ghost in the Shell, where it pretty much defines humans by what they do. As it, there's a couple of times in the movie where you get told a human is what they do. Like that's how you. That doesn't matter about anything else. That's how you know what a human is. Which got me thinking about like really like is that the movie seems to want to leave us with that at least a puzzle over that. So I did and thought well. Like, well, what if you're, you know, what if you're asleep and not doing anything? Or what if you're in a coma? Or, you know, what and, and what are these things that so are... So you cease to be human because you're actually not conscious. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Like, if your actions define you, well, and which particular actions? And just because I'm doing any action, does that mean oh, I'm a hey, human? Hey, I see what you're doing here because um, by that definition, yeah, you, you could, if you use that definition, you could uh, quite happily say, well, someone who's in a long-term coma is no longer human, so their death would not be a big issue. Yeah, yeah. So, look, Ghost in the Shell is great for conversation about what does it mean to be human? What do we think it is to be human? Again, what kind of actions constitute being a human? And could a robot be a human if that robot is doing the same actions of a human? And it drove me back, uh, as we often do on, on this show, like thinking about how God set up the world and thinking about the, his construction of humans and the fact that we're built in the image of God. That's very interesting. But it's also very interesting that we have a brain and a body. And a lot of, um, across the sweep of the Bible, a lot of talk about humans and holistically, as in the whole package of a human, you get talk about the brain and the heart, the heart and the head. You get the kind of the soul and the, 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 the spirit, the kind of essence of a person, as well as the fact that we're packaged in a body. All of that wrapped into one in this presentation of how God has created us. So Ghost in the Shell wants to kind of ponder this very deeply, whereas I find the Bible actually kind of answers these questions of, is there a ghost inside our shell? Well, the answer is yes, you can discover it in those pages. But Ghost in the Shell is a great place to launch into bigger conversations about that. Okay, well, Ghost in the Shell stars Scarlett Johansson, Pluah Asbeck. I don't even know how to begin to pronounce that. He's a Danish guy. There you go, a Danish guy. Juliet Binoche and Michael Pitt. And it's now showing at cinemas and is rated M for science fiction themes. No surprise, violence and a category I've never heard of before, stylized nudity. Yeah, which it, which it kind of is, not to, you know, like talk it up. But yeah, it is stylized yeah, yeah. early. It definitely is. But yes, they're right about that. It's definitely there. Now, look, before we move on to the show, Mark, here's a quick announcement. We are on Facebook, The Big Picture Show. Come That's on, find us. That's not a us. new thing, people. We didn't just go, hey, we just discovered <laughs> we, Facebook. We found Facebook. We've been on there for some time. Come and find us and let us know what your favorite science fiction movie is and why. It could be Blade Runner or 2001. It might even be that Eddie Murphy dud Pluto Nash. Whatever it is, <laughs> let us know on Facebook, but tell us why. And we would love to interact with you about that. Eddie Murphy duds also include Boomerang. Okay, we cruise into our next break with the high octane sounds of the next film in the Fast and the Furious franchise and rev it up after that for this week's big buddy cop release, Chips. Welcome back. This week sees the release of the eighth film in the Fast and the Furious saga, and I do mean saga. Oh, mate, you've, you've waited a long time for this, Mark. How I do have, you massive Fast and Furious fan you? It's our soundtrack segment, but as a little lead into our soundtrack segment, I thought we'd just quickly recap the entire franchise, just in case you haven't actually worked out what's going on. Eight films. The first one, Undercover Police, 
officers racing cars. Easy. Sure, yes. The second one, undercover criminals racing cars. Yep. The third one, delinquent kids racing cars, but in Tokyo. Yes. Okay. Uh, four, criminals turned FBI agents racing undercover with more criminals, but not in Tokyo. But not in Tokyo. Okay. That's how you can tell the fourth one apart. In five, we've got prison escapees racing cars. Mm-hmm. In six, international prison escapees <laughs> racing cars. Some of them back in Tokyo. Um, which is not so bad. Um, in the seventh film of the franchise, reformed international prison escapees being blown up by bombs sent from Tokyo. There's always a Tokyo link. I know, but retaining just enough body parts to race cars. Uh, and now in the eighth film, The Fate of the Furious, which I predict will be a story about reformed international prison escapees going undercover as FBI agents in Tokyo before being blown up by bombs sent by delinquent kids who've been racing cars Four criminals, except that because fate is in the title, we're hoping one of these bombs will finally take the entire cast out. You have pretended for such a long time not to like this franchise at all, and yet you can summarise it so well, Mark Hadley, and present what you think will happen <laughs> in The Fate of the Furious this Thursday when it opens at cinemas. There you go. Too violent for you? Too likely to send the average teenager into a tyre screeching frenzy in their local cul-de-sac? <laughs> Possibly. I think so anyway. And instead of playing one of those bass-thumping doof-doof songs that Tokyo Drifters favour and contributing to the the problem, I thought, why don't we use our soundtrack segment to fuel their imagination with a much more wholesome picture of what the ideal automobile is really all about. What a funny noise it's making. Well, she's only talking. Talking? Yes, all engines talk to you, especially when you get to know them. What's it saying? She's saying... Chitty, 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 chitty. Bang, bang! Chitty, 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 bang, bang. Chitty chitty bang bang! Chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang. Oh, you pretty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, we love you. And in chitty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, what we'll do? Near, far, in a motor car, oh, what a happy time we'll spend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, I'll find for friend and friend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, I'll find for friend and friend. Right? Who's for a spin? Truly? Rather. Let's go for a picnic. A picnic? By the seaside. All right, hop in. Drive, Daddy, drive. Well, you've got to say please to Chitty first. Please. Oh, you. Pretty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we love you. And our Pretty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang loves us too. High, low, anywhere we go on Chitty Chitty, we depend. Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, our fine for friend of friend. Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You're uncategorical. A fuel-burning oracle. A fantasmagorical. Now, wouldn't it be much, much better if, in fact, the Fast and the Furious introduced Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a sort of a side character? I can't believe in eight films they haven't introduced Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And blown it up. Well, Tokyo Drifting. With Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. For those people who don't know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was written by the Sherman Brothers, the pair who wrote more motion picture musical songs than any other songwriting team in film history. Some of but their... isn't it based on a novel written by Ian Fleming, the guy who created James Bond? Thanks for stealing my thunder. <laughs> 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 yes, these guys actually based it on, or the musical was based on it, the Ian Fleming novel. Um, a man who also knew how to drive fast, uh, but remained a gentleman while doing so.
Hollywood is no stranger to mining successful television shows for the odd film plot. So think of oh, The A-Team, The Addams Family, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and that's just starting with the A's. Not all big screen versions of small screen stories have been as successful as those, though. <laughs> this week, another title will be aiming to turn a favourite cop show into big cinema bucks. Chips! is the remake of a, t- of a hit TV series from the 70s about two motorcycle riding officers of the California Highway Patrol, Chips, who learn that it takes more than bad-looking bikes to make a pair of brothers. We're the California Highway Patrol. California. This job is crucial. Without us out there... Oh, come on! No one could get hurt! California Highway Patrol think they have some crooked cops. They want you to go on the inside. Go on the cover within a department? That's awesome. We put you with a rookie named John Baker. So who am I playing? Francis Llewellyn Poncherello. Are the first two female names? <laughs> Which is a question we've all been asking ourselves since the 1970s. I actually am one of those people who sat down as a kid as a family experience and watched the original Chips television series in the 1970s um, and eating chips. I mean, this my parents. It was a great moment in which we Seamless. would sit down. We would sit down and watch as a family, and Dad would bring out the fish and chips, and it was chips and chips. We made that joke every week for the three years that that series and went never on. ceased to be funny. Never got over it. Uh, anyway, and so I went to the preview the other night, and um, what did they give us? Chips. Oh. Like we're going to sit down. They gave us. I was. Thankfully, I wish, I wish Dad had been there. Anyway, so this version of Chips introduces Ponch, okay, by play by Michael Penner as an undercover FBI agent. They got that from the Fast and the Furious, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Who joins the Highway Patrol to uncover dirty cops who've been heisting armored cars? Dax Shepard, who incidentally also wrote and directed the film, uh, stars as his partner John. John. Who, it's way less interesting than Poncherello. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's got the boringest name around. But they Ponch, were kind of like straight man and funny man in, in the original TV series. They kind of reversed that. John's more of the funny guy who happens to be a former extreme sports bike rider who sort of smashed his body up in a zillion different ways and is hoping for a new career in the police force to save his marriage. Uh, look, it is just, um, just funny enough to transition from that old classic into a new film. But how does it really compare, Mark, with your childhood memories of eating <laughs> chips around the TV around the TV every week with your family watching chips? How does it compare with the TV I show? I think the first thing that's pretty obvious for people who might remember the chips series is it was a drama and this is a comedy. Okay, so... So um, are they mocking chips? They're having a real laugh over the fact... They're, they're pointing out some of the more obvious things, like that these guys wear the stupidest uniforms ever and they look... <laughs> they're brown and they look like UPS drivers. And, you know, it's, it's just that sort of thing. But look, I feel like one of the other big things that people should know is that Chips was a really wholesome series about cops doing the right thing and, and being a bit funny but also saving the day. Um, and this is full of basically a lot of bad language... Um, some really unavoidable sex jokes and some sexual content that's just unhelpful. Right, okay. right. Yeah. So As you expect in a lot of adult comedies yeah, these days. And so it's a pity because um, the funny thing is that none of these things actually add to the comedy. If they trimmed out some of the language, the film is rated MA15+. plus. If they trimmed out some of the language, if they changed a few of the, there's some full frontal nudity, if they just dropped that out, they would have been at M and that pretty much would have put it in the ballpark for most comedies at the moment. Okay. Now, what's actually going on in Chips? Do we actually get some great, deep, 
chewing over issues like you might have done, say, in the, in the drama in the 70s. It's a comedy cop drama up on screens. What's going on in it? It's not just being played for laughs. That's one of the interesting things about Chips. Uh, this film uh, has a couple of really deep threads going through it. So one of them is the villain uh, is actually involved in what he's doing. He's being the bad guy to try and save his son from addiction to drugs. You know, he wants to just get him out. And oh, get like doing a- bad things for good reasons. Yeah, but in, in essence, there's like more depth than you'd expect to the villain you know this sort of cardboard cut out bad guys doing bad things sort of thing is the movie trying to justify his behavior it is in one respect you actually start to feel like it's trying to make you feel for him as to why he's doing it you know the other thing is there's this whole brotherhood thing that's going on that i think is probably the best thing in the film like again I, I fall short of recommending this film but if you find yourself watching it this is one of the interesting things about it that um we're in this age where in which um, for guys to have any physical contact with each other on screen or in life, it's almost being interpreted as a sign of latent homosexuality or, or gayness you know, in general. Um, it's but, usually made a subject of jokes in most movies like this. Yeah, exactly. And in this film, the, they actually take a real laugh at those people, particularly Ponch in this case, who can't handle the fact that um, a guy without a shirt might give them a hug. Um, or, um, you know, there's a life-threatening situation where his partner, John, is in real severe pain and Ponch isn't going to help him for fear that he might see him naked. And you just go, and so the, the jokes are there, but what we're laughing at is the fact that we've lost the ability just to be men around each other and not feel like there's something queer going on. Very quickly on the subject of chips, um, there's always a bit of a formula with these buddy films. You get some odd guys who end up making a better whole, like a better unit together. Is there anything more to it on this occasion with this reboot of Chips? Yeah, I feel like buddy films are really worth thinking about in the same way you think about rom-coms. Like in rom-coms, the woman uh, character finds the man that she uh, always wanted who completes her. And strangely, in buddy films, we find the friend for the guy um, who is always going to stand by him. Think Lethal Weapon, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And like all jokes aside, this is like a, a serious brotherhood matter. It is. And the interesting thing for me is that we're reaching out for something. As scriptwriters, it's an axiom. It's something that the audience will always be reaching for. Guys will always be reaching for the guy who completes them, who will actually stand by them, the brother above all brothers. Now, the weird thing is that this actually happens in history. Uh, Like Jesus is presented as the brother who will stand by you beyond everything, you know, who will die for you. And we keep reaching for this in films. And I can't help but thinking about that that's the way God's designed us. Women to look for the man who will love her for who she is. Men to look for the guy who will stand by their side, who has their back. So I can't see a buddy film like this without thinking if you value buddies, you're ultimately valuing Jesus. Chip stars Michael Penner and Dax Shepard. It is rated MA15+, and quite rightly so, according to Mark, for strong violence and coarse language. But strangely, not for the unnecessary nudity that Mark mentioned a bit earlier. So be warned on that front. And it has it did open nationally last Thursday on April 6th. Uh, before we get on to the rest of the show, Mark, uh, a quick shout-out to Insights, uh, insights.uca.org.au, a terrific website that's a big supporter of the big picture. As we head into the Easter week, and people are thinking about all kinds of things Jesus, Mark, like you just mentioned, go to insights.uca.org.au to read a bunch of different Easter articles, including about Wesley Mission's Passion Play. I don't know if you've heard about this, Mark, but it takes over the Sydney CBD every Easter and you get effectively some kind of a a sort of reenactment of Jesus on his way to the cross and crucifixion. So it brings the city of Sydney, Australia's biggest city, to a screaming halt. 
around Easter to commemorate what Jesus did. To learn more about why Wesley Mission does that, go to insights.uca.org.au. And to learn a bit more in the next break, the top five motorized movies. Welcome back. Uh, This week for the top five, well, in a show where we've talked about a motorized wheelchair in Speechless and we've talked about motorcycle cops in Chips, the big picture thought we might as well keep motoring along. And how else to finish the show than with the top five motorized movies? Five. Lock from 2013, L-O-C-K-E, Lock. Now, I was going to put Speed in here, that famous Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper <laughs> bus movie, Bomb on a Bus movie. But instead, you thought you'd go for the obscure. I thought I'd go for the obscure one <laughs> okay. that you probably haven't heard of that starred Tom Hardy. And I'm picking this one because Speed wasn't entirely set on the bus, whereas Lock, all the whole movie, is watching Tom Hardy drive his car. I think he's driving from Birmingham down to London. The whole thing is set like just him in the car and he's talking hands-free and across the course of the film he makes 36 different calls to everyone from his boss to a colleague to his wife and his mistress because he's actually going to London because his mistress who had a one-night stand with is going into labour and he was meant to actually be at home with his wife and his kids who are watching an important football game and so you get get this swirl of hands-free phone calling in the car with Tom Hardy driving all the way down to London. That is an amazing motorised movie. But you haven't seen it? I think I want to see that just for the script, just to see how it comes together. Yeah, and Tom Hardy uh, does a fantastic job as a guy driving a car on talking on a lot of different phone calls. And basically, you're watching his life imploding before his and our own eyes as he drives the dark roads down to London. And that was made in 2013. Lock. Four. Here's one from my childhood, Mark. You were talking earlier about chips and eating chips. Uh, Here's me talking about going bananas in 1980 or early 80s for Herbie Goes Bananas. Did you eat bananas while you were watching Herbie? Uh, I I hope I did. My memory isn't that strong of it. Herbie Goes Bananas was out in 1980. If anyone doesn't know, Herbie the Love Bug was a creation of the Disney uh, Studios and it's basically a V-dub who had kind of cute like headlights that looked like eyes and he was a bit of a racing beetle. I don't know why he was so fast. He was like a super-powered... V-dub beetle that he was a former race beetle that a former race beetle yes he got into crazy kind of capers including going bananas but he also went to Monte Carlo and plenty of other pl- uh, things in sequels um, it's kind of like the precursor to cars yeah yes exactly right uh, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't animated it was live action although the you know special effects for the, the V-dub I don't believe Herb, Herbie was real I don't think Herbie was real at not last like, report not like cars no not like cars <laughs> <laughs> but I picked Herbie Goes Bananas because my uh, childhood memories of going to the cinema involved going to see a Herbie movie. I'm pretty sure it was Herbie Goes Bananas, even though it was out in 1980, which would mean I was four. But I think I went to the cinema around six or eight when I saw this. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just making things up. Could have been in drive-in. Could have been a drive-in, but no, it wasn't. It was in a cinema. It was eating bananas. I don't know. The appropriate going to drive-in and watching Herbie Goes Bananas. One of of the, the... motorized movies that instantly jumps to my mind is uh, how much as a kid I loved the adventures of Herbie and I think even in Herbie Goes Bananas he did everything such as going up a skyscraper and you know one of those window washer um, contraptions and then somehow he fills a whole office full of suds and you know people end up like washing out into the hallways in suds but just a picture of Herbie up on a skyscraper cleaning windows is there nothing Herbie can't do it turns out there is nothing. There is something that Herbie can't do. Be rebooted. There was an attempt to reboot Herbie about five or six years ago. Lindsay Lohan was in that reboot. Yikes. Just don't. Don't. Go back to Herbie <laughs> Goes Bananas. Three. Okay, the most famous motorbike movie ever is... That's a question mark. Oh, I... Um, 
most famous motorbike movie ever. Come on, man. Okay. Um, Easy Rider. Oh, yeah. That's what you were going to say. That one. Easy Rider from 1969. <laughs> um, even if you haven't seen it, surely you've heard about it, this film that Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper of uh, Speed fame uh, made in the late 60s, this quite countercultural revolution of a movie, which is... A really a story, a little bit of much ado about nothing, really. Um, two blokes who, who get on some some massive bikes and ride um, from like down the America across the American Southwest and and South after they've stolen a huge score of cocaine, <laughs> and they basically just go on, oh, a, the, on fam- a, the family road trip. Oh, the family road trip. <laughs> they basically go on a trip all the way through Easy Rider um, after that big score. Uh, one of the most famous things about Easy Rider was the fact that it um, became a real example of American maverick movie making in the in the Hollywood system. So you've got some big stars, big money, big clout, but they kind of made a movie that they wanted to make, and they didn't really care about its commercial potential, even though it went on to be a hugely celebrated critical and commercial success but it had everything from fast and loose scripting to the acting as well let's just say possibly affected by the substances that are up on screen uh, and and the morality and the message of it is uh what's the polite word sometimes dubious <laughs> but there's plenty of coolness in this as you get so many shots of peter fonda and dennis hopper riding their choppers across america complete with at different points jack nicholson as one of their passengers so Coming in at number three on the motorized movies list of all time, Easy Rider. Two. You thought Locke was obscure, Mark. You <laughs> Re- thought Locke was obscure. Rev me up. What's Here next? Here we go with number two, The Wages of Fear from 1953. Welcome to a top five where you get a bit of an education lesson in movie history. If you haven't seen Wages of Fear, you should go and try to find it. So 1955? 1953. It's 53. a French-Italian production, but, oh. it, but it is in English. It, <laughs> it is in English, and it's set somewhere in South America. Why do you bother? But, mate, why? <laughs> Why do I bother? Let me explain to you why no, I bother. Is it black and white? It is in black and white. Okay. Because anything in black and white is what instantly not worth watching. What I'm are you just talking saying, about? Well, you know, once we invented colour, why go back? Oh. <laughs> Heathen. The Wages of Fear from 1953 is so, so great. This is uh, set in somewhere in South America. And there's an American oil company that's drilling deep in the Amazon jungle and then some massive fires, like there's an oil refinery, an oil dig basically catches fire. How are they going to put it out? Huge tankers of nitroglycerine is seen to be the solution for this. How do you bring in tankers of nitroglycerine? Well, someone's got to drive them. But how do you get into the Amazon jungle? You've got to drive along treacherous roads oh, that, okay. are, that are winding around mountainous peaks. And so... Basically, the wages of fear. I saw this years and years ago. It's one of the most like attention and the pity of stomach movies I've ever sat at. You know, like edge of your seat stuff, but actually edge of your seat where you're watching these guys drive trucks full of nitroglycerine that could explode at any moment around some of the hairiest roads you've ever seen, like in in the world. And the film uh, is so a, it's just it's ice road truckers. It is ice road truckers from <laughs> except, 1953 except the, in black and white. Except the thing might blow up. Except the yeah. thing might blow up. Uh, it's a very famous American film critic called Pauline who was massive in the 70s. She called this an existential thriller because it's basically about humanity's fear of being blown up at any moment. So that could be by government or corporation who are in control of the little guy. But it's also a film about the rich versus the poor because the guys who are driving the trucks basically take the job because there is no other job that they can take or that they see that they can take. And so they've got to basically take a job that could lead to them dying. Maybe Lindsay Lohan will remake it. (laughs) I hope not. The Wages of Fear, 1953. Number two. 
Here's one that you've probably heard of, Mark. The Blues Brothers from oh, 1980. Okay. I'm, so okay? I'm so glad you pulled this out. I was just thinking, so- I thought we were in a tailspin. Yeah, <laughs> like once you're having to- a go at me for knowing something about <laughs> movies, Mark. Yeah, uh, that's right. The Blues Brothers, 1980. Uh, if you haven't seen this film, like it comes at number one on the list, not just because it's a fantastic musical road movie, but because I think it still claims the honour of having the biggest car. Actually, this isn't entirely true. It, it did have the honour of being the biggest car pileup of all time on screen, 130 three cars were destroyed in this if anyone who's seen the film you know what I'm talking about the climax the climactic scene where there's like there's hundreds of police cars chasing the Blues Brothers Jake and Elwood Blues played by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi Uh, 103 cars were destroyed and you can see it all on screen I was going to say, that was the biggest car pileup of all time until they made the sequel, which nobody saw, Blues Brothers 200, and they intentionally destroyed 104 cars just so they could claim their own record. So they could beat their own record. That's pretty much the only notable thing about Blues Brothers 2000. So go back to the original 1980, the Blues Brothers. That that massive pileup of cars also included a car, the car chase that went through a real shopping mall and took out a real shopping mall. But one of the things I think that stands out about the Blues Brothers is whether you agree with uh, their summation or not, the Blues Brothers were on a mission from God. And I yeah. like the fact that they were guys driven to do something. Some guys who were like straight out of prison, very selfish, very self-centered, but they decided because they thought... That that God had told them to do something. They went on a mission for God across the country to help other people. That is a great thing to think about as you think about the Blues Brothers. We'll be all right if we can just get back on the expressway. Don't look like no expressway to me. Don't yell at me. What the hell you want me to do, motorhead? Well, try not to be so negative all the time. Why don't you offer some constructive criticism? got us into this parking lot, pal. Now you get us out. You want out of this parking lot? Okay. How can you top the Blues Brothers? Well, we'll start with next week, The Night Manager, spies on the small screen you should see. Also on next week's show, this new movie called Last Days in the Desert that has Jesus and Satan played by the same actor. Controversial. And speaking of controversial, new drama Denial focuses on a guy who says the Holocaust did not happen. Next week, I'm going to remain Ben McKechnie. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world.